Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, New Lessons from Leads, Streamlining Non-Invasive Testing Algorithms. This conversation starts by considering the incremental value of ultrasound in improving screening and diagnosis. Ian Rowe delivers on hashtag RealTalk when he notes that the physician is likely to disregard an ultrasound that clashes with the rest of the patient's workup results. From there, the group goes on to consider two critical issues in screening. From Stephen Harrison, minimizing the number of indeterminate patients by increasing information output and accuracy from test results. And from Louise Campbell, providing information in a way that the provider can deliver it quickly and accurately to individual patients and, in the process, motivate these patients to change their own lives. These are different ways of thinking about the goals and value of testing. You'll want to hear it. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatologist and hepatology researcher Dr. Ian Rowe of the University of Leeds, UK, as they discuss some findings from Dr. Rowe and his colleague, Dr. Richard. Parker that confound conventional wisdom this week on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Point three brings us back to the the sort of the the efficient patient journey through diagnostics. And when you when you've got a million blood tests and you know fifty thousand abnormal tests, and you're seeing the wave of referrals coming towards you, you're going to try and do anything to try and prioritise which patients should come and try and reduce the burden of diagnostic testing on some of your colleagues, at least uh, in a cost constrained and efficient system. The biggest pinch point that we were finding was an increasing burden of referral to the ultrasound department following an abnormal ALT particularly and so at their repeated requests we looked to see what the yield of ultrasound was in people who had an isolated abnormal ALT and who had no symptoms and we did that through a combination of approaches and we took two years worth of data of people who had an incident abnormal ALT and then went to the ultrasound department and pulled all of those patients records. We looked to see what the ultrasound showed and we went back to primary care and looked at their risk factor profile. So we started off 1500 people and in those we didn't find any really bad findings. So we didn't find any liver cancer, didn't find any metastases in patients who didn't have symptoms. And what we did find is we found an awful lot of fatty liver, which has come as no surprise to anybody here. And what we saw was that the incidence of fatty liver on those ultrasounds increased as the risk factor burden increased. The lowest risk group yet still having nearly 60% of scans showing fatty liver were people who were drinking too much alcohol. The next group were people who only had obesity. The next group were people who had obesity plus other metabolic risk factors where the probability of an ultrasound showing fat was over 80%. And then the highest risk group was those people who had metabolic risk factors and were drinking excessively uh, where the risk for fatty liver on the ultrasound was over 85%. And that's led us to question what the value of that scan actually is. Because where the physician's pre-test probability that that scan's going to show fatty liver is already very high. You know, so if I've got a patient with diabetes who's got a BMI of 32, they come to see me and they've got an ALT of 65, then I already think that probably eight or more times out of 10 that the ultrasound is going to show liver fat. So when the scan comes back to me showing liver fat, it doesn't surprise me and I wonder really what I've learned from doing the scan. But at the same time, the next day I see a very similar patient and the ultrasound comes back and says, there's no liver fat seen. Well, I say, 
Well, it's fatty liver, isn't it? It's just that below the limit of the sensitivity of the assay today. And I don't think any more about it. I might, well, I probably would have done a fibro scan in any case, which showed that the cap was elevated, knowing then that the patient's got fatty liver. And so because of this, we have questions and in fact have stopped doing ultrasounds in this patient group. And this brings us to the most efficient pathway we can get to, at least today. And that is to say that a patient who has elevated ALT in the community has uh, liver screening for additional causes of liver diseases, they have a fibrosis test, and if that fibrosis test is elevated, then they come for further testing. Don't need anything else. And it also makes me wonder whether there are more efficient pathways still, and that is you know, whether just doing a fibrosis test instead of worrying about ALT and other underlying liver diseases, just do the fibrosis test. If it's elevated, then you get the full, you know, you get the full diagnostic testing. You come and have your fibro scan. If it's not, you go back to primary care and you have it repeated in three years if you've got ongoing risk factors or sooner if there are clinical concerns. So what are you folks think? Does that, does that follow logically to you? Yeah, I like the idea of not just holding out for an abnormal ALT. As you know, we're, we're going to miss quite a few patients that have disease that have normal liver enzymes. So I think, again, that to me is, that goes back to um, data that we hit on again in our prevalence study that just was published in J-Hepatol that, you know, the diabetic population, the patients with metabolic syndrome, you know, the high-risk postmenopausal Hispanic female, all those have pre-test probability for having something more than just fatty liver and should, in my opinion, be tested with fibrosis biomarker or some some sort of combination of tests. Maybe I'll stop there and see if you agree with that comment and Louise, what your thoughts are. But to me, I, I think we, we shouldn't, we, we, we teased around the idea of should we do, should it be mandatory for endocrinologists and primary care to screen diabetic patients for fatty liver? And the answer was no, because we should assume that they have fatty liver. And it's, it's just like, should we screen diabetics with the ALT or ALT? Well, no, because because a lot of the time they'll have disease and the liver enzymes will be normal. So we need to just take a population that has a predefined risk and just test them and test them with something simple that has a very good negative predictive value. And then that gets us to the second comment, which is what do we do with those that have indeterminate results? So anyway, I think I think it's great that you don't do ultrasounds in all of these patients. I think I agree with Stephen. Whilst I now use FibroScan as the majority of the screening just because people should be able to access this earlier information to change behavior and give them that opportunity. Anybody we pick up with either abnormal fat or stiffness or both is actually automatically referred back to their primary care physician with information. If it's something that's serious, I have physicians who want those referrals. So for me, it's an opportunity to screen earlier. As you know, people shouldn't get liver disease over the time. But I think there there has to be a mechanism at which we pitch those patients. And I think going back to what Stephen was saying there about we should assume that all diabetics have fatty liver disease. I don't think all endocrinologists and all primary care physicians assume that those patients have fatty liver disease. We hear time and time again patients coming back to us saying they told me I had a fatty liver but it was nothing to worry about. I don't think there is yet that understanding of how serious fatty liver is and it's not a benign condition. We don't know how fast. We can't pick the phenotypes that are going to progress quickly through F2, F3, F4 yet. We're not that precise and I think that goes back to 
again, what Stephen was saying earlier about getting more genetic markers so that we can really fine tune our predictability. But we've got to start with just finding those population. And if that means that everybody over the age of 11 gets an initial assessment and then is reviewed so that you know somebody's got a normal liver, you can then timeline the events to an abnormal liver. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we have a serious global pandemic of obesity and metabolic syndrome that has significantly fueled a pandemic that's viral. And we've seen that trend three times now in the 21st century. So... I think it's a combination of everything. I want to make a behavioral comment. I, I talked about this, gosh knows how many episodes ago in the context of cholesterol. But if an entire population has an abnormal measure and people are biased to think about mean, median statistics, then in fact, you're just going to miss the idea. So if somebody says you have a fatty liver, that's no big deal. That doesn't mean they can't find the fatty liver. It means they don't understand the meaning of it because it's too widely dispersed throughout the society. I think the education issue is a little different. It's a different acceptance of what's normal. As I said about cholesterol, when they started putting on lab tests that it wasn't two standard deviations from the mean, but it was an LDL of X or a cholesterol of Y that flagged somebody, all of a sudden people got a lot more serious about it. They simply took the data they'd already seen and they viewed it differently. And my feeling is that's probably what has to happen here, number one. I do agree, though, that in the States, the definition of defensive medicine is you have to completely prove everything four different ways before you do anything about it. It's wiser simply to say, if 80% of the time uh, test A is going to lead to result X, then why am I doing test A? Why don't I just assume result X? There's tremendous logic to that. And the part of the problem in liver, Stephen pointed out, is that you can have a normal liver and an abnormal test. You can have an abnormal liver and a normal test. If we look for too much proof, we're ultimately going to be able to prove both sides of the proposition way too often. What I like about the idea on ultrasound is that we all tend to have this bias because technology is always better than what's simpler. And ultrasound may not be a complicated technology, but it's technology. And it might not be a better proof than good liquid markers might be as we develop them. We talk about the polygenetic stuff, Stephen. If, am, am, I, am I hearing you right on that? It's not for the faint of heart. You know, Ian, and Ian has taken on a big task and he's working his way through the process. And I think the first thing is you find out what doesn't work. Then you got to go hunt down, well, what what does work? And the problem is for all of us, Louise, Ian, anybody in this field, you know, when, when, when we go big game hunting, we want to pull down the biggest, baddest, most accurate weapon we can have to take on the safari, right? I go to battle. I want to have the best weapon at my disposal. The problem is when Ian looks at the armamentarium of tests he has to pick from, there are not a lot of precise laser-guided munitions in his shelf, right? He's got a lot of 500-pound bombs that he kind of has to pepper everything with to try to get at the answer. And so as our ability to um, develop better testing comes along with drug development, we'll get better at it. We'll be more precise at identifying those patients. But part of that process is exactly what Ian is working through right now. That's how we get there. We have to identify the limitations of these tests so that we can refine the next test to make it better. And at the end of the day, we, we either pull the right combination of tests together or we find one singular test that answers the mail across a broad spectrum of, uh, of diseases. But it's not easy. I don't disagree with any of that. My thought was that if you go into certain other places in medicine, not hepatology, but there are places where people have to confirm something five different ways to believe it, particularly in the States because it's practicing defensively in the presence of possible malpractices and all that stuff. So you just get a lot more testing you need. Not simply a lot of 500-pound bombs, but well, you get a lot of 500-pound bombs and without any sense of whether what you're doing is improving specificity or simply 
are you trying to disprove more often that you're not about to make a mistake? This, as a discipline, it's a, it's a huge task, but it makes a lot more sense to me in terms of trying to find the clearest way to get to an answer that actually benefits the patient as compared to defense against mistake. I'm just thinking about what Stephen was saying there. And it's what you do with that ammunition that's important. I use a test that allows me to see a lot of patients very quickly and give information back. And some of that can be very soft, but some of it can be nuclear bomb. And it is the ability to give that information at the right level for the individual person who's having that test and then to facilitate the improvement of care through the pathway that's actually the skilled part of FibroScan. And I think, or any non-invasive diagnostics, if you use it in a screening way. I had a gentleman that phoned me that said, are you the same person that screened me two years ago? And went on about how he's changed his lifestyle and his diet and everything in those two years and has continued it. And yes, it's me because it's the same person. But it was amazing to hear his story over two years. So it's what you do with that intervention and that ammunition when you go big game hunting. But what we're looking for is a funnel to bring down those patients with the broadest yield in the quickest way. And non-invasive technologies like FibroScan do that. And I think what Ian was saying at the beginning is that why use some other tests when one gives you the most information very quickly? It was just something I chose to leave the NHS for because I can see more patients in effect in that way and get it to GPs and get it to all of those areas highly cost effective. And I think that's, for me, where we need to be progressing with liver disease to get the right people to the likes of Ian and Stephen and through those physicians that are the minority. We don't have a lot of hepatologists in the UK. We don't have a lot of hepatologists in the US compared to gastroenterologists and endocrinologists. So we're a small field if we actually put ourselves together. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions or comments about it or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. We will release our next episode on Wednesday, April 7th. Our guest will be Dr. Alina Allen of Mayo Clinic, who will discuss some of her work on the value of MRE in predicting three to five year progression for both cirrhotic and non-cirrhotic patients with Nash fibrosis. It's an excellent groundbreaking paper with importance for lots of the issues we've been discussing recently. So I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.